You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. know he's um, the only true God amen and he's worthy of being exalted uh, the only God is worthy to be exalted and yet he's also the only God who lowered himself right every other God says you got to you got to do something to please me but our God says I you know I, I will lower myself and die for you and pay for your sins so that you can get to me. Isn't that amazing? That's the wonder of, of the gospel. Amen? Amen. All right, well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. That was a good, solid good morning. Uh, hope you're doing great. Uh, I'm excited to be here worshiping with you. Um, go ahead and be turning to John 18 if you'd like. Before we dive in, I want to just uh, echo a couple of announcements. Uh, first, for, for members, we do have those membership covenants in the back. Um, there wasn't a ton of people in here whenever we did announcements, so I just wanted you to uh, make sure you heard that. Uh, again, this is something that we do every year at, at Risen Life for members. Um, just as a, a way of re-signing that covenant, reading through you know, why, why are we here this morning as a church family? You know, why have we committed to this church family? What are we committing to? Uh, and of course, above all, we're committing to Christ and to pushing each other uh, towards Christ. So um, we do have some of those in the back. Um, so if you're already a member, you want to grab one of those and, and uh, take a look and, and get that signed and, and turn back to us. Again, if you're not yet a member and want to know more about membership, let us know. Let me or Stephen know or or Paula, or Melissa, or, or uh, many people here, really, we can point you in the, in the right direction. Um, and then secondly, I don't, know if, I don't know if we announced this one, but um, on March 11th, that's a Friday night, so March 11th, Friday night, um, what, 6.30? We're, we're determining the time right now, but uh, 6.30, we'll, we'll let you know if that changes, but we'll say 6.30 for now. We're going to be uh, showing a movie here at the church um, from Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, it's called Sabina. It's their second movie that they've released. But <clears throat> this is a, a, a true story and a very powerful story about uh, Richard and Sabina Vernbrand, um, <clears throat> who are the founders of Voices, Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, it's really about how Christ just absolutely transformed their lives uh, while they were living in in Romania under under both Nazi regimes and then uh, communist regi- regimes as well, um, other communist regimes, I should say. Um, so this is a, a very, very powerful uh, movie um, and really shows a clear picture of, of the forgiveness of Christ and the transformation that is in Christ as well. So, so don't miss that. That's going to be March 11th again uh, here at the church. It's a Friday night. Uh, invite somebody, uh, we want to spread the word on this, uh, bring somebody else, um, maybe a fun night of, of fellowship, but also a time to, uh, to really uh, grow in Christ together as a church family, so um, 
Yeah, with that being said, let's let's open to John chapter 18 and we'll get started. Um, And today our title will be the trial and the denial. So the trial and the denial. Um, You can probably guess what it's about based on the uh, based on the title there. But uh, we spent our last our, our time last week looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 18 where we saw the betrayal of of Christ and the arrest of of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he, uh, Jesus and and his now 11 remaining disciples have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. um, And and they went because that's where Jesus knew that Judas would be coming uh, to to betray him. So he went purposely, uh, purposefully to the Garden and so Judas arrives there and he's got this entourage of, of hundreds of armed men uh, ready to arrest Jesus. We saw in verses 5 and 6 uh, that when the soldiers say that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus doesn't run or hide uh, like, like they may have expected. Uh, it seemed like they had a, a lot of men expecting that Jesus might, might run from this situation. But, but no, Jesus steps up. Uh, boldly steps up to the moment, his moment. This is the hour that he keeps talking about. And he replies, uh, what did he say? Anybody remember? I am. I, <laughs> I am he. With that, except that he's not actually there in the Greek. Uh, so yes, he says, I am. And he's, he's, of course, proclaiming his deity there. He's also proclaiming his control of the moment, right? Um, and, and he also uh, knocks the soldiers down off of, off of their feet, right, with that statement. Because there's power in his name. Um, and so you can go back and, and listen to the podcast on that if you're interested in the other details of these moments. But um, here this morning, the narrative is going to progress. And Jesus does willingly hand himself over uh, to these uh, so-called authorities uh, to be arrested, uh, knowing that this is the eternal plan of God, right? This, is, this was the plan of God all along to save the world from our sins and his eyes are squarely focused on this moment the moment of the cross and so starting in in verse 12 we're going to see Jesus be put on trial uh, although in in this case that word should be used very loosely because this was uh, not a legitimate trial as we're going to see here and in this section um, we're about to read about the trial we also see Peter's denial of Christ kind of interspersed uh, throughout this, um, it's really, it, it goes back and forth between these two scenes that are all happening right in the same spot, but it goes back and forth between Peter and the trial. It's, it's really as if the Holy Spirit wants us to see a comparison between Jesus' actions during the trial and then Peter's actions as he denies Christ. So um, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, if you will. Uh, we're going to read uh, in chapter 18, verses 12 through 27 and then we'll dive in here then the detachment of of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and they led him away to Annas first for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people and Simon Peter followed Jesus And so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. 
But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire, who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a a relative of him whose, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time again with our church family. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, the guests that we have today. And it's such a pleasure and a privilege to worship with them this morning. And uh, God, we're, we're just so thankful for what you're doing here at Risen Life. And God, as, as we open the word this morning, uh, we just want to recognize that this is truth, Lord. Your word is truth. And God, we need to hear from it this morning, Father. We don't need to hear from me, Lord. We need to hear from you. And God, I ask that we would this morning. I ask that you would speak through me, Lord. Move me out of the way. And, and speak to your people what you would have them hear, Lord. If there's one who, who doesn't know you this morning as Savior and as Lord of their life, Lord, will you please save them this morning so that they may have life and have it more abundantly, Lord. And God, we, we ask that you be glorified by this time together. We ask that you would be exalted in these moments together, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can have a seat. Well, I've got five points this morning that will serve as headings for the different sections that we'll encounter. Hopefully keep us on track uh, in keeping up with, with all that we see here and all of the back and forth in this passage. And as we look at this, I want us to notice, and, and we'll try to point out along the way, the comparison between the glory and the, the majesty of Christ and the sinfulness of, of man. There's a, a stark contrast here in this section. And so let's, let's look at our first uh, heading this morning just to get us oriented, and that's going to be the scene, the scene. This will be in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 has us starting back in the garden where we left off last week and says that the soldiers with the captain and the temple police, they arrested Jesus and they bound him. Now, many commentators have, have paused here to, to make the point that Jesus here is bound as he goes to this trial. He, he's bound just like they would bind the, the Passover lambs as they took them to be slaughtered uh, for the sins of the people. He's bound uh, just as Abraham bound Isaac 
remember, to the altar as he prepared to sacrifice him to God um, in Genesis 22 before God provided himself a substitute for Isaac. Of course, that's, that's the, the whole purpose of that was to look forward to this moment of Jesus when he would be our substitute on the cross. And now we see the perfect son of God bound in the same way and being led as a lamb to the slaughter, just as Isaiah wrote about 800 years before this point, right? He wrote in Isaiah 53, 7, that he would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. And now we see this fulfilled in Jesus, along with over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. So they have him bound, and they lead him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is the high priest um, in Israel at this time. And, and so this is a little bit confusing, um, as none of the other three gospel writers record this trial before Annas. Only, jo- only John uh, records this. They jump straight to the trial before Caiaphas, and they skip this part before Annas. And so what does Annas really have to do with anything, you might ask yourself? Um, the other gospel writers only mention the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Uh, remember, the Sanhedrin uh, was the governing body of the Jews. Of course, they, were, uh, they had authority over them, too, as well, which was the Romans, because Israel was under Roman control at this time. But the, the Sanhedrin was the governing body of the, the Jews. They would determine uh, whether Jesus or any other criminal was guilty or not. Um, it's important to note here that that Jesus's trial is not just one trial. In fact, it had uh, six phases uh, of of his trial, and that's that's really important to to try to piece together as you as you read the four gospels uh, together. So, six phases of this trial. Three of these phases were religious trials before the Jews, and then the other th- three phases of this trial were civil trials before the Romans. Because, again, the Jews had no authority to put someone to death. And that's what the Jews really wanted to do with Jesus. So this trial before Annas is the first of these three religious trials. After that, Annas is going to send Jesus to Caiaphas, who is the acting high priest. Um, He will hold his trial in front of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. And then it says that at daybreak, there will be another trial before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas um, and they'll confirm everything, and then they will send it on to Rome. So they'll send it on to Pilate. The civil trial will consist of a hearing uh, before Pilate, and we'll see that next time. Uh, Pilate doesn't want to deal with it, so he sends it to Herod. Um, and then Herod doesn't want to deal with it, and Herod uh, sends it back to Pilate. And that's where we'll see the final sentencing. So six parts in total of Jesus's one trial, and and uh, this is the first before Annas that only John records here. Are you confused yet? Yeah, it's it's a lot, right? When you try to piece this all together, it's a lot. Six parts of this trial. Um, remember, John is writing probably much later than the other gospel writers, and so he's he's kind of filling in some of the gaps here. They don't mention this trial before Annas, uh, but John feels that it's important. Of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit to um, to record this, and he's filling in the gaps. So, why Annas? What does Annas have to do with anything? 
Um, well, Anna served as the high priest as well before Caiaphas. Um, from, from the year A.D. 6 to the year A.D. 15. Uh, and then he was removed by Rome. Rome didn't like someone being in power for years and years and years and years. So they would occasionally change the high priest whenever they felt the need. However, God had said in numbers about the high priest that this was supposed to be a lifetime position. A lifetime office. You held this position for life. And so Annas was removed in A.D. 15, but in Israel, many people in Israel still considered him the rightful high priest. He still ma- maintained much influence, which I think is, is pretty evident from the passage here. He has a lot of influence in the Jewish uh, governing bodies. Um, in fact, he may be the one pulling all the strings, really. On top of that, Rome uh, kept the high priest in the family of Annas. So they deposed Annas, but after Annas, five of his sons were high priests. One of his grandsons was a high priest, and then Caiaphas was a high priest. Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law, so they kept it all in the family. Um, And so Annas still has much power and much sway, and he's doing this sort of initial trial uh, with Jesus to attempt to mount some evidence uh, that he can pass along uh, to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. He wants this, this thing to be wrapped up before he sends it on to Caiaphas. Um, now, Annas was known as a very, very greedy uh, man, and he also ran uh, the temple business operations that, if you'll remember from, from John and the other Gospels, Jesus twice overturned those operations. Remember, he came into the temple and overturned the tables. Remember that? Um, he cleansed the temple. And so Annas ran all of that, those shops in the temple courtyard. Uh, in fact, they became known as the bazaars of Annas. And so that, that shows again how much power uh, this guy had. And in those shops, uh, it wasn't just that they were selling things in the temple courtyard. Uh, they were also ex- exploiting the people. And so they were charging ridiculous prices. You would come for a festival uh, and you needed to give a sacrifice, and they would have a sacrifice for you to give, but they would charge you outrageous prices. Or they would look at the sacrifice you had already brought, and they would almost certainly find a, a, a blemish with it, and they would uh, demand that you buy one from them, and they would charge you crazy prices. Also, they would uh, take up a, a temple tax um, at the temple, and that could only be taken in Jewish currency. So if you came with any other currency, you had to change over your money. And the money changers would also uh, charge just exorbitant uh, fees uh, to anyone who wanted to change their money. So lots of corruption happening in the bazaars of Annas. And Jesus had disrupted this a couple of times. So Annas, you can imagine, is probably chomping at the bit to, in, in his mind, serve Jesus justice, right? He's going to get what he deserves. And that's how Annas is, is viewing this. And we really see here the picture of just how corrupt and wicked the high priest had become uh, and the other Jewish leaders had become just absolutely greedy for power and for money, uh, totally hate-filled, judgmental, willing to do uh, whatever it takes to maintain their positions of power. Uh, They lorded their authority over the people. And you know how often we have seen 
religion used in that way, even Christianity used in that way. Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, all of us, right? We can all shake our heads and say, yeah, we've seen people exploit religion all the time as a means of controlling people or, or, or uh, gaining some sort of power. In the meantime, we have Christ. And, and, and Matthew 20, verse 28, says that He came not to be served, but what? To serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus. What a contrast between Jesus and these wicked leaders and any wicked leaders today who would be in the same position. John notes also here that that Caiaphas was the one who, back in chapter 11, if you'll remember, advised the Jewish leaders that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And we made note of that back in chapter 11. Caiaphas was concerned that Jesus' followers were going to be so large it was going to start a riot and, and, and Rome would just come through and destroy them. They would wreak havoc on the nation. And more importantly, Caiaphas would use, lose his position of power. That's what Caiaphas was concerned about. So he says, hey, don't you guys see that we need to kill this man for the sake of the nation? And... Um, John notes in John chapter 11, back where he said that, in verses 51 and 52, that Caiaphas unknowingly was prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation's sins. Remember? And not only for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. In other words, Caiaphas was accidentally prophesying the truth about Jesus. He was accidentally prophesying that Jesus would take our place on the cross. He would be our substitute. He would take our punishment so that we wouldn't have to. One man would die for the nation. He was prophesying penal substitution. John notes there that, that from that day on, back in chapter 11, from that day on they plotted to put him to death. And here in chapter 18 we, we see that plot finally playing out. But, you know, I think John mentions this again as a reminder, again, of, of who is in control here. Who's really in control here? The Jews think they have this perfect plan to kill Jesus. But in reality, this is the plan of God in order to save his people from our sin. And he is in control of every single detail. So John here, he has set the scene uh, I should mention that this is also happening, not in the temple where it should be happening, but this is happening in a courtyard, uh, probably in the courtyard in front of the palace where both Caiaphas and Annas would have would have lived. Um, and so it was illegal to do this in the middle of the night. It was illegal to do this not in the temple, but of course uh, they didn't care. Uh, now let's look at our next heading, the stumbling. So we've seen the scene, we've set the scene here. Let's look at the stumbling. And John mentions in verse 15 that Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now, some have proposed uh, that this other disciple might be Nicodemus or might be uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, they were parts of, uh, they were Pharisees. They were parts of the, the Sanhedrin. And so perhaps uh, they were the ones that were this other disciple. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning investigating that. Uh, most scholars agree um, that this is John. This is John speaking of himself. 
John never mentions his own name in his his gospel, uh, but always refers to himself as as the other disciple or the beloved disciple or something similar to that. So most likely this is John. John and Peter have have come to the to the courtyard. Now, after Jesus was arrested, Matthew's gospel tells us that all the disciples scattered. Uh, This was, again, to fulfill a prophecy hundreds of years before. Um, from Zechariah, strike the, sh- the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But then Matthew and the other gospel writers tell us that Peter did come to his senses and he followed Jesus. He followed him at a distance. And here, um, here he's found along with John uh, near this courtyard where Jesus is having Jesus being put on trial. Now it says that John was evidently known to the high priest. Um, this could have been because of, of John's father's fishing business. Uh, there's some evidence to that in some early writings. Uh, perhaps there's some er- other reasons why John was known to the high priest. I don't know why he was known to the high priest. I don't think anyone knows for sure. And I'll leave you that to, to investigate if you're interested in that. But the point is that John had some sort of influence with the high priest, some sort of semi-close relationship with him and his family. Um, And so John is already in the courtyard where Jesus is, and he has to come outside to where Peter is and assist him in getting in. And it's at this point that that we see the great stumbling of Peter. Now, Peter really represents the best of the followers of Christ in in many ways. I mean, we we give Peter a hard time, but in many ways, he's representative of of the body of Christ. he has really taken a leadership role among the 12 disciples. He has made very bold and very accurate statements at times um, about Jesus, just as he did in John chapter 6. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He knew exactly who Jesus was, and he proclaimed that uh, boldly to Jesus. He was the one, remember, who stepped out of the boat to walk to Jesus. Now, he took his eyes off Jesus, right, and he began to sink. But he's the only one who had the courage to step out of the boat, right? Um, He, in some ways, does represent uh, the strongest and most devoted, uh, the most bold among among followers of Christ. And yet, in the midst of Christ's greatest time of of loneliness, of, of isolation, of suffering, it is Peter... Who, who really has his greatest failure. As we'll see here, he denies Jesus three times. And Peter's an example for us that there is none of us who is worthy on our own. There's, there's none of us who is capable of overcoming the power of sin and of darkness on our own. No matter how bold or, or skilled or Uh, how good of a talker we might be, or how strong we might think we are. We need Christ moment by moment in our lives. Remember back in John 13, verse 37, Jesus told Peter and the other disciples that where he was going, they couldn't follow now, but, but they would later follow. And Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? He says, I will lay down my life for your sake. He says that to Jesus. 
And remember, Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for my sake? And it's at that point that Jesus predicts this moment. He predicts that, that Peter is going to deny him uh, three times. Another event which Matthew records in, in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 22, was just after Jesus had revealed to his disciples that he was going to be killed, he was going to be arrested, killed, and then he was going to be raised on the third day, he told them. And Peter boldly replied, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you, he said. He said to Jesus, This is not going to happen on my watch. And remember, Jesus rebuked him. He said, Get behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, you're speaking the words of Satan because Jesus knew that if he did not go to the cross, there would be no payment for sin. He had to go to the cross. It was totally necessary. But, but Peter is very bold in his words. Not on my watch, Jesus. This is not happening to you. I will die for you, Jesus. We saw last week that in the garden, Peter drew his sword ready to fight for Jesus. Peter's made some very bold statements. But here... Really just moments after that scene in the garden where he drew his sword, Peter has another test. This, this slave girl who, who kept the door asked Peter, you aren't also one of this man's disciples, are you? Evidently, she already knew that John was one of the disciples. Um, <clears throat> now, now this, is, this is a slave girl. Now, this is a girl who has no power. Uh, this is a girl that really Peter should not be intimidated by. And, and we see the stark contrast here between Jesus in the garden saying, I am, and Peter here saying, I am not. I am not. He denies everything that he is. Everything that he stands for, he denies. And then the next verse tells us that he stood by the fire with the very ones who had arrested Jesus. He's now trying to fit in. He's got to cover up his lie that he just told. He goes to the fire. He stands with the soldiers so that he's not noticed. Trying to fit in. Now, I think we have to give some credit to Peter here. Um, he did actually come here, right? He did actually follow Jesus. Where's the rest of the disciples? Right, they're, they're nowhere to be found. His love for Christ compelled him to find out What's going on? To see the end of this. What's going to happen to Jesus? Do you think Jesus meant those, or do you think Peter meant those words that he said, Jesus, I am ready to die for you? Do you think Peter meant those words? I think he did mean those words. I think Peter meant those words with every part of his being. Lord, I am ready to die for you. But when the trial came, in his moment of, of loneliness and, and isolation and, and mostly fear, right? Peter is scared here. That moment of testing, he was weak. Weak, denying his relationship to his Lord. I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn here from Peter. One, obviously, is that pride comes before the fall, right? When we think we are so strong spiritually 
is when we really need to be on our knees all the more. When we think things are going so well in our Christian life, we're doing so well, we've had these great victories. Stay humble. Stay needy with Jesus. We need to stay needy with Jesus. We've got to realize our constant need for Him. We are weak in our flesh. No different than Peter when we're relying on our own strength, when we think too much of ourselves. I think Peter thought a little too much of his commitment to Jesus. I think he meant those words. But um, his pride ended up getting the best of him. Another error that Peter made here that also has its roots in pride is that Peter, although he did love Christ, he consistently followed his own opinions and feelings above the word of Christ. Jesus says, you will deny me, Peter. Peter says, I don't think you understand who you're talking to, Jesus. I would die for you. You don't understand. Jesus says, this is the cup that I must drink. I must suffer these things. Peter reaches for his sword to fight. I've got another way, Jesus. Right? Jesus says he's going to be killed. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. Not on my watch. I will not let this happen. In his attempts to express love and and zeal for Christ, really, Peter was, was sinning. And he was simply just not trusting the word of Christ. Jesus tells him in the garden of Gethsemane, right before his arrest, He tells him and the other disciples, watch and pray. And Peter, it says, overcome with his emotions again. His own feelings, he he falls asleep in the garden. You have to wonder if he'd been more ready for this moment, if he had taken Jesus at his word. If he had watched and prayed, if he had remained diligent in the garden in prayer. You have to wonder if he'd been more ready for this test. Peter failed the test because his faith was more driven by his own thoughts and his own feelings than by the word of Christ. And I think that's a valuable lesson for us this morning. We need to understand that feelings are unstable. Feelings are, are, are great. It's one of the gifts of God. And there's a lot of feelings associated even with our, our love for God. There's a lot of feelings associated with that. But feelings can be quite unstable. Do you recognize that in your own life? Our hearts are deceitful. And, and, and they're desperately wicked. As, as Jeremiah says. And you know, sometimes you don't feel Christ. Sometimes you don't feel His power in your life. Sometimes you don't feel His love in your life. Sometimes you don't feel His security. Christianity is not about feelings. And sometimes those feelings aren't there. Sometimes they're there to a great degree, right? Other times it's like, where are you, Lord? I don't feel you anywhere. I don't feel your presence. And in those moments, you need to decide, is my faith going to be feelings-driven or word-driven? Is my faith going to be 
driven by my own emotions and feelings and thoughts, or is it going to be driven by the Word of God? What does the Word of God say? What is the truth that God has already revealed and shown to me in the past? Or shown to me through His Word? In the storm, in the testing, when when Satan is trying to to sift us, as as Jesus says that, that Satan wanted to sift His disciples, when that's happening, those are the questions that we need to be asking. What does the Word of God say? What is the truth that He's already revealed? How has He already proven Himself to me? Not, how do I feel in this moment? What are my feelings telling me about God? They're probably not telling you anything about God. They're telling you a lot about yourself. And your selfishness. We cannot be feelings driven. Feelings don't overrule truth ever. They don't overrule truth. Peter's feelings of of mostly fear in this moment overruled the truth that he knew so many times while he walked with Christ. And I have a suspicion that that, that's the case for, for many Christians today and maybe many of us in this room sometimes. Our anchor remember, is, is, is the truth of God's Word. Which has stood the test and, and, and attacks of time. And will endure forever. Think of all the Bible has withstood. Now, that is a rock. That is an anchor for your soul. Your feelings are here today and gone tomorrow. A good night's rest will sometimes get, get, get rid of your feelings, right? And you're thinking totally different the next day. We are unstable in our thoughts. The Word of God is stable. And we need to study it. We need to cherish it. We need to memorize it. We need to hide His words in our hearts. And that needs to be coupled with desperate prayer. That God would keep us from the enemy. He would keep us from the attacks of the enemy. That He would keep us in the truth. That He would renew our minds by His truth. Not by our emotions. So that's the stumbling here. We see Peter stumble. Let's move to our next point. I'm going to call this the sham. And these last three points will move a bit quicker. At least I hope. We'll see. At least you hope, right? In in verses uh, 19 to 24, uh, John moves back to the scene of the trial. And and again, that term trial should be used loosely uh, because this trial was, was absolutely a sham. Um, the leaders had already decided the outcome and now they just simply needed to convince the Romans. That's all they needed to do because they weren't allowed to put Jesus to death. They've already decided they want to put Jesus to death. So Jesus is, is before Annas here in the middle of the night, which is illegal. Um, in the courtyard, not in the temple, which is illegal for capital trials like this one. And um, Annas is asking Jesus about his followers and what he taught, it says. He asks about his disciples and his teaching. Now, what is Annas trying to do here? I think, I think what Annas is trying to do here is to get Jesus to say that he has this huge public following. and He's got all these people that will fight for him. 
and vouch for him so that he can take that to Pilate and he can say, see, this man is an insurrectionist. This man is about to start a riot. He is a threat to Caesar. He is a threat to Rome. And he must be put to death. And ultimately, that's what they say to Pilate, right? We'll see that as the story progresses here. But ultimately, that is uh, the charge that, that, that tells Pilate that he's got to do something, even though he didn't want to. And so um, that's what Annas is trying to do, trap Jesus into saying something that he can take to Rome and say, see, this is why he needs to be put to death. But of course, that's not Jesus. That was not Jesus' plan. Jesus tells Annas that, look, I've spoken openly in, in synagogues, in temples. That's the only places I've, I've taught. I don't have some private message. I've spoke what I've spoke, and everyone has heard it. You can go ask one of them. You can ask any of my followers. There's no secret teaching. There's no two-faced teaching with Jesus. There's not one, one message that sounds good to the crowd and then one message that's the real message to the, to the, the other followers. He has one message. He's spoken it very openly. And lots of people know what he has taught. And his message is what? It's the message of the kingdom of God and of salvation. That is his message. It's not a message of, of Israel coming back to power. It's not a message of, of, uh, of, of you having health and wealth and, and prosperity, right? It's a message of dying to self so that you might have life in him. It's the gospel. Unlike Peter, who, who wavers under the pressure, Jesus has, has consistently taught, both publicly and privately, He's consistently taught, taught this message of the gospel. And so Jesus asked Annas, He says, go, go, tell, go ask someone who's heard me teach. Go ask anyone. Now, when we read this, it, 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 maybe it sounds disrespectful to us, like, like, like Jesus is kind of snapping back. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Instead, he's reminding Annas that, hey, what we're doing here is illegal. You need witnesses. Um, according to Jewish law, just, just like American law, an accused person was, was not to be forced uh, to speak for himself, to testify of himself and incriminate himself. Instead, the law required witnesses. What they were doing here um, was totally illegal. Now, we will see... Uh, we won't see it in John, but in the other Gospels, you see the trial before Caiaphas. And there are witnesses there, but it's stated that they're false witnesses and none of them could come up with the same story. It's obvious that they are false. But here we see nothing of witnesses. We see nothing but abuse of the accused. Jesus is reminding Annas that this needs to be a fair trial. There needs to be witnesses and so one of the officers took offense to that, or more likely just wanted to look good in front of Annas, who had a lot of power, and he slaps Jesus in the face. Now, I'm not sure what I would have done if I had Jesus' power in this moment. Maybe you're not sure what you would have done either. Actually, I am sure what I would have done, but it wasn't what Jesus did. <laughs> It's not what Jesus did. I'm fairly certain I would not have reacted like Jesus, unfortunately. Jesus, we see here his complete patience 
we see complete control from Jesus. Self-control. 1 Peter 2.23, Peter would later write this of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That was Jesus. Jesus had his focus so completely on the mission of bringing salvation to us through death on the cross. He was so absorbed with that that, that, that he took these unthinkable abuses, just abuse after abuse after abuse, and he said not a word. Again, just like Isaiah had, had, had prophesied hundreds of years previously. By the way, it's also illegal to strike the accused person. This was another illegal thing about this trial. This trial was a sham in every way. And in verse 24, we see that Annas is getting nowhere, and so he sends Jesus now to Caiaphas. And again, you can read about that in the other gospel accounts. Um, And that trial was also another sham. It was already determined what the outcome would be. And they had plotted this, and now for a while how they could put him to death. The only one who could save them from their sin. Next, let's look at the spiral. In, in verse 25, John returns to Peter, who is again, he's, he's there warming himself by the fire. And he's there with those who had arrested Jesus, right? He's trying to fit in, trying to cover up what he, what he just had said, his denial. He's got to... Now he's got to really sell it, right? He's already denied him once, and, and, and here he goes again. At the fire, they ask him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? Again, that question expects a negative response. Like, you're not, are you? Um, they're not really even accusing him here, but just asking. He says again, I'm not. I'm, I'm not one of his. And then he gets a little more serious, a little more pointed, and and one who was a relative of Malchus, whose ear Peter had cut off in the garden. He recognizes Peter, and this time it is in an accusing way that he asks. He said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And this one's expecting a positive reaction, right? Like, I know I saw you in the garden with him. And the other Gospels tell us that at this point, Peter curses He adamantly denies Jesus. I do not know the man. Stop asking me. Cursing. Get away from me. I don't know this guy. Adamantly denying his Lord. This is not a good look for Peter. We see here the spiral of sin on display. We see this spiral. One sin leads to another to cover up the first, right? Uh, then it's so much easier to just sin again and, and again and again. And before you know it, you're completely and adamantly denying Christ's work in your life. This is how sin works, Christians. We give Satan a foothold and it opens us up to more And more and more, it makes it easier and easier and easier to sin again. And the more we sin, the easier it becomes. 
and the harder our hearts become towards fellowship with Christ. It becomes harder and harder to just repent and turn back to the truth, even though First John tells us he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's as simple as that. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we'll just repent. But so many times we just spiral, don't we? We just keep going. And somehow we have this fear, I guess, of what God is going to think of us. I'll tell you what God is going to think of you. He's going to have His arms wide open, ready to forgive and embrace you again. That's what He's going to think of you, Christian. He's going to think, there's my perfect son. And now he's, he's come back to me. That's what He's going to think of you. There's no reason to fear when we are in Jesus. Amen? There's no reason to fear. But Peter feared in this moment. He, he feared men in this moment more than he feared the Lord. At any point, he could have come back to the truth. He could have repented. And Jesus would have been right there waiting to forgive and restore. This might be you this morning. Maybe you've gone down a path of sin. And now you're not sure if you can get back. And maybe you've, you've developed such a reputation at work or at school because of sin that you've committed in front of people in the past or whatever. And you're not sure if that reputation can be changed. You need to know this morning that those thoughts are the thoughts of the enemy. And they're thoughts of your selfish pride. They're not thoughts of truth. Jesus is calling you back this morning if that's you. But it's going to require humility. It's going to require an understanding that you don't have all the answers. But you're trusting Him for them. It's going to require repentance of sin to Jesus. And maybe repentance of sin uh, to other people that you've offended. That's a big swallowing of our pride sometimes, right? But if we will humble ourselves, He will lift us up, the Bible says. He will save you. He will restore you. And He'll use you once again for His kingdom. If at any point in your spiral out of control, you will repent, He will save. He will restore. But let me warn you that the more you run from God the easier it gets to run from God. The harder your heart becomes. So this morning, if you need to stop the spiral, then stop the spiral. Come back to Him through repentance. Peter failed to stop his spiral at this moment. He just kept going. And he was left with, with great shame. And that's going to be our closing point this morning, the shame. Verse 27 says that immediately... A rooster crowed, just as Jesus had predicted. This probably would have been about 3 a.m. at this point. And this is the only detail that John gives us, that the rooster crowed. But if we flip over to Luke chapter 22, um, verses 61 and 62, it records the same event. And Luke records that after the rooster crowed, 
the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Remember, they're in the same courtyard, and the Lord turned and he, he, looked, he, he locked eyes with Peter. That is chilling to me. Absolutely chilling to me. Jesus, who had just been made a mockery of, he's just been slapped in the face. He turns and looks at this man who had, who had been so bold previously. I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll stop this. And he knows what's happened, of course. He knows that Jesus, that Peter has just denied him, just as Jesus predicted that he would. And they lock eyes. Whew, what a moment. And Luke goes on. John doesn't mention it, but Luke goes on to say that Peter then remembered Jesus' prophecy in that moment. And he went out and he wept bitterly, it says. He wept bitterly. That's the difference between Judas and Peter, by the way. He wept bitterly. He had godly sorrow, which led to repentance. Judas did not. Judas went and committed suicide. But can you imagine the shame that Peter carried from that moment? And do you, can you imagine how Satan used that in, in, in Peter's mind so often? He's witnessing to a crowd of people and, and Satan brings it up. You're not worthy. You remember what you did? When Jesus was dying? The shame that, that, Peter, that Peter must have uh, dealt with. I can't imagine. And you know, that's the end of the story for Peter and Jesus before Jesus' death. That's his last memory before he sees Jesus uh, put on the cross, uh, placed in a tomb. That's the last thing. Jesus staring into his eyes after he had adamantly denied him. But thank God that's not the final end of the story, right? That's not the final end of the story for Peter and Jesus because on the third day, Jesus would rise from the dead. Amen? He would rise from the dead, and we're going to see at the end of John, we'll get there, that he returns to Peter, and Peter is completely restored. He completely restores Peter. And Peter would become one of the main leaders of the church in the book of Acts, of course. And Peter would speak boldly of Christ and his salvation. He would bring thousands to Christ. And Peter would suffer much because of his great boldness in speaking the truth. And Peter would give Mark all of the information that he needed for the gospel of Mark. And Peter would go on to write the books of First and Second Peter. And God would work great miracles through Peter. So much that people just wanted to touch his robe so that he would, they would be healed. Or they just wanted to be in the way of his shadow as he walked by. So that they would be healed. God worked great miracles through Peter. And ultimately Peter would be crucified. Upside down. Because of his great bold proclamation now of Christ. This man who, who failed so miserably in his time of testing. And look what God did with him. We learn so much from, from this section of scripture, I think. There's a lot of, of details to wade through, yes. But I think there's also a lot of good lessons here um, you know, the dangers of pride, 
obviously. The wickedness of, of the human heart we see on display here. The deceitfulness of, of sin and how it could just spiral out of control for us. And how that we need to rely on Christ's word and prayer above our own feelings and our own thoughts. We learn here of the importance of repentance, early repentance. At the moment of conviction, you repent. Don't run. Don't run from him. No matter what you've done. But let's also not forget the message of hope in this account. Okay, there's hope here to be seen. God is powerful and mighty to save and to restore and to redeem. Even in our worst failures, if only we will humble ourselves. Ultimately, that's what Peter had to do. He wept bitterly. And when, when he had the opportunity, he humbled himself before Christ. And God, Christ restored him. Peter would get that second chance. And we're going to read that at a later time. But for you this morning, I don't know if you'll have another chance. I can't tell you that. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning, today is the day to repent of sin. Today is the day. And um, I'm going to ask, do we have a song? Is the band coming up? I'm going to ask the band to come on up. If the Spirit's convicting you this morning, you need to respond. Whether you're a believer this morning who's, who's kind of spiraled in sin, maybe not even sin, but just lack of fellowship with Him, which is sin, right? Maybe that's you this morning. You need to come back to Him. You need to repent. Maybe you're a believer who just trusted your feelings too much and let that run your Christianity. Rather than let the word of God decide what truth is. So maybe this morning you need to come back in repentance and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Your word is truth. Renew my mind by your word. Or maybe you don't know him at all this morning. And, and today you, you need to be saved. You need to, for the first time, repent of your sins. And put your trust in Jesus Christ as a savior of your life. You've seen this morning his determined love to save you. Jesus was not going to stop, not going to let anything stop him from the cross. You've seen his patience to restore those who will humble themselves. You've seen that, that there is no one else who loves you in this way. And, and maybe this morning you, you crave that, if you're honest. You need that, the emptiness. And if that's you this morning, then, then you need to come to Him in salvation, in repentance of your sin, and in trust in Him as Savior and Lord. Jesus says this in, in, in Matthew 11. This is one of my favorite, favorite couple verses here. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That's who Jesus is. He's gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus is calling to you this morning. Whether you're a believer this morning who needs to come back or, or, or an unbeliever who needs to believe this morning. And needs to believe and, and put your trust in Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes. We're going to close in just a moment here with a song. What a comfort those verses are to me. That no matter how far I run, how much I spiral, Jesus says, look, I am gentle and lowly and I will give you rest. I'm not going to pound you over the head with your sin. I'm gentle and lonely, lowly, and I will give you rest. What beautiful words from the Savior. If you need to come this morning, don't wait. I'm going to be in the back if, if you need somebody to pray with you, maybe help you put that into words. Um, Jesus has life for you. That's what he has for you. Unlike any other religion on this planet, Jesus came down. He lowered himself to the point of death so that he could pay for what separates you from God this morning. And that's your sin. Repent of sin and trust in this wonderful Savior. And let him use you like he used Peter for the building of his kingdom. I'll leave you with that this morning. Christians, let's be the light this week. We must be the light in this dark world. People out there don't even understand what Christianity is because we've screwed up the picture so much. They don't even understand what the gospel is. Let's be part of correcting that. Let's live, live the gospel this week. Not just claim the gospel, but let's proclaim it too. Let's live the gospel and proclaim it wherever we are. Let's be the light this week. Let's be the reason that non-believers can't seem to get Jesus off their minds. Because we're different. And we lead them to the gospel. And not only do we lead them to the gospel, we show them His great love by our example. I'm going to leave you with that. If you need to, whatever you need to do with Jesus this morning, do it. Again, if you want to come to the altar and pray, feel welcome to do that. If you want to grab me in the back and pray, I'll be glad to pray with you. If you want to sit in your seat and pray, do that. If you want to sing along with the worship song, do that. Whatever you need to do with Christ, uh, this is your time to do it.